Now, this morning we want to open up the scriptures. If you'll take your Bibles, please. You may want to bring it up on your phone or your tablet. But please turn with me to John chapter 17. We want to pick up where we left off last time together. Uh, I would encourage you, if you have some notes in your Bible, to make sure that you uh, are following along. It will mean a lot more to you as you follow along in the message. As you're taking time to do that, I want to remind you that next Sunday uh, is our solemn assembly, and inside your program is a very special prayer guide that we want all of you to take note of because there is something special to pray for every single day this coming week. Understand that we ran out of programs today, so hopefully all of you got a program. If you didn't, uh, hopefully we'll uh, have some additional ones uh, available next week. But uh, uh, that little prayer guide uh, is to kind of guide you, something specific to pray for every single day uh, as we look forward to this time of humbling ourselves before God and seeking his face. Uh, this is something that uh, we've never done before as a church family. Very few churches ever hold a solemn assembly. It's interesting, Tony uh, Evans, who pastored a large church in Houston, uh, every uh, beginning of their church year, they would have a solemn assembly. Just a means to just get everything laid out before the Lord and start fresh. And uh, so this will be a time for us uh, when we, as a church family, humble ourselves before the Lord and seek his face, uh, we'd love to have those of you in the, the balcony to join us down here at the lower level next week. We're not insisting on it, but we'd love to have you join us because I believe that when all of us can be uh, together and we have plenty of seating, uh, we'd love to have you join us uh, on the main level next week. Uh, we're not going to be live streaming that service. It will not be live streamed. We'll have an alternative uh, service that will be available for those online, but this is a moment for us to meet the Lord, uh, and it's between us and the Lord, and we're not uh, promoting this or publicizing it or sharing it uh, outside the church, uh, and so it's just going to be a special time uh, to seek God's face, and we anticipate there'll be a number of, of uh, new individuals here, and we'll explain to them a little bit that it's not your typical uh, Sunday morning worship, but it is going to be a time uh, in which we meet God in a very special way. So uh, please keep that in mind. And again, join us at 9 o'clock in room 201 for special time of prayer. We want to continue to seek God's face as we get ready to uh, take this important step of uh, healing in our congregation uh, that God would continue to do a great work in each one of our lives. Now, John chapter 17, I want you to look at verses 6, and we're going to read through about verse 11. Will you please stand in honor of God's word? Remember, this is the prayer that Jesus is praying for his disciples and for all those who would ever put their faith and their trust in him. Beginning at verse 6, Jesus prays, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All that I have is yours, and all you have is mine. 
and the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one, even as we are one. Remember, this is the prayer that Jesus is praying as he anticipates going to the cross. He anticipates laying down his life for your sins and mine. And in some senses, he's praying as if that act of crucifixion has already taken place. But he has his own. Those who have put their faith and their trust in him, they are the ones that are on his mind. And in this particular passage, uh, he is praying specifically for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ that they would experience the power of his presence in a unique and special way. Father in heaven, open our eyes to your truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have good news for you this morning. Every single person in this room matters to God. Every single person, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever your state in life is, you all matter to God. You've been created in his image. You've been created in his likeness. And if you have put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only have you been created in the image of God, but you've been recreated. You've been made brand new from the inside out because you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you have the resources with which to meet all of the the uh, challenges, the ups and downs, the battles of life, uh, not as a victim, but as a victor, because through Christ, the Bible tells us that we are all overcomers. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough, we are also at the top of Christ's prayer agenda. Let me remind you this morning that every single day, the Lord Jesus, the one who loved you and came into this world to impart eternal life to all of us, he prays every day for us. Even when we're not aware of the fact that he is praying for us, the Bible says Jesus here is saying very specifically that he is praying for those who have put their faith and their trust in him. Now, how do I know this? Well, I want you to take a look at the passage here. Look at verse 9. Notice Jesus says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. He's not praying for the happy pagan. He is praying for those that have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Notice the text. That message was first of all given to the apostles. They proclaimed a message of Jesus Christ who was real, who existed, who was crucified and buried, laid in a tomb, and then was resurrected from the dead. And those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the transformative work of his presence these are the ones that he is praying for as he anticipates 
those nails going into his hand, that spear being thrust into his side, those crown of thorns being crushed on his brow. He's purchased for us something that we could never purchase for ourselves. He purchased our salvation by offering himself once and for all on the cross and then being triumphantly resurrected from the grave. But even more important, he prays for us. Let that sink in. When you feel like nobody cares about you, when you feel as though you are totally alone, the Savior of the world, if you have put your faith and your trust in him, he prays for you. Now, this is an awesome reality. Last week we discovered that in John 17, 1 to 5, Christ is anxious to be reunited with his Father so he can experience the glory that he left behind in eternity past when he assumed human flesh and put on humanity as a little baby, was born in a manger and then grew up to die on the cross and to be resurrected for us. And he longs in those first five verses to once again experience this unmitigated glory, this splendor, this majesty, this incredible brightness of God that he left so that he could become our sin substitute. And Christ, laying aside his glory temporarily, did it so that he could purchase our salvation But now he prays to his father that he can be restored to this glory. And he he almost speaks of the crucifixion has already taken place. You'll note what he says here in verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Well, what was the work that he was given to do? He was born to die, to go to the cross and lay down his life for us. He was born so that we could experience new life. And he's already uh, feeling as if that debt has already been paid, even though at this point the cross is in front of him. But he not only prays that the Father would restore him to full glory because of his obedience to his plan, he prays for his disciples. And he's praying for every single person who would ever put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. Before looking at these specific requests that he prays for for his disciples, I want us to note carefully what Jesus is praying for and how he describes these growing disciples. You see, after we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's not the end of our Christian journey. We are all people in process, and we are all disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a lifelong learner. We never get to that place in our spiritual lives where we have it all under our belt. And so in this passage, he identifies what I call the the earmarks of what a fully devoted follower of Christ looks like. First of all, growing disciples belong to the Father. Look at verse 6. He says, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. He describes growing disciples as gifts that he gives back to the Father. Just think of this. 
That when we put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he considers us special gifts, and now he's giving us back to the Father for safekeeping so that the Father can preserve that which we've committed unto him. It speaks of assurance. Growing disciples have the assurance of their salvation. They don't hope so or, or uh, feel that their Christianity is some kind of a maybe so. They know so. They put their faith and their trust in him. Their salvation is secure. <coughs> Excuse me. In John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus puts it this way. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we have the assurance that we belong to the living God. We are secure in him, not because of what we do. Our security is not based on our feelings. It's not based on our circumstances of life. Our security is found in the person of Jesus Christ who presents us as gifts back to his Father for safekeeping. And no one can snatch a person from the Father's hand. No one can snatch a person from the Son's hand. Jesus and the Father are one. Number two, growing disciples obey God's word. Notice verse 6, the last part of it, they have obeyed your word. One of the key words in our Christian life is obedience. The second key word is endurance. Because the more we obey, the greater will be our endurance. And as we continue to endure, we will have a greater desire to obey and to love the Lord Jesus. Obedience to God's word not only means glory for Christ, it means growth and blessing in our lives as Christ followers. If we want to be growing disciples, if we want to be men and women that take on the life of Jesus Christ, it begins by our obedience to this book. This book must become our very best friend. Now, why should we obey God's word? Well, number one, it demonstrates our love. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, if you really love me, you will do what I command. Number two, it accentuates our joy. Again, John 15 and verse 11, Jesus says, I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. If you want to experience joy in the Christian life, it begins with obedience. <laughs> it begins by a heart that is submissive to the word of God and we allow God's truth to shape us. We don't let the culture shape us. We allow the scripture to shape us. It accentuates our joy and number three, it guarantees spiritual fruitfulness. In John 15, 7 and 8, Jesus said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Later on, he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear fruit that will last. He wants our lives to be spiritually productive. He doesn't want our lives to 
to wither up and dry up because we haven't been feeding on the Word of God and obeying the truth that God has for us every single day. Number three, growing disciples understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. You see this in verse 7 and 8. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and underscore this next phrase, they accepted them. In other words, you can know all about the Scriptures, you can know all about Jesus, but until you accept his words and personally apply them to your life, you're still lost. We are still without God. We can have a head knowledge, but until we understand that we must take this message of Jesus Christ, buried, crucified, buried, and risen, unless we personally accept that he did this for us, we are still lost. And so Jesus makes it very clear here that growing disciples understand this. Now, Jesus is not just the Galilean fisherman. He's not just the carpenter from Nazareth. He is the Son of God. He is the one who executed the Father's plan and carried it all out, bearing your sin and mine in his own body on the tree. When Christ speaks, God speaks. Growing disciples understand that Jesus Christ is divine. He is both God and man. His humanity does not lessen his deity, nor does his deity make him any less a man. He is the most unique individual that ever walked on planet Earth. He is the God-man. And growing, un growing disciples understand this, that Jesus Christ came from God, he is God, and he is the only one who can save us and transform our lives. Peter puts it this way in John 6, 68 and 69. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Number four, growing disciples bring glory to the Son. Notice verse 10. All that I have is yours and all you have is mine. And all glory has come to me through... What's the text say? Through them. That is, growing disciples. By our obedience, by the way in which we live, every single day we are bringing glory to Christ the Son. Notice, all that I have is yours, and all that you have is mine. In other words, he is speaking of this incredible unity that exists within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And joy and glory take place as we walk in obedience to all God has provided for us. Growing disciples bring glory to God through their obedience. Number five, growing disciples experience the true full measure of Christ's joy. Look at verse 13. He says, <clears throat> I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still with you, so that, notice, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
we as growing disciples can have the joy of the Lord in our hearts every single day. It's not something we have to look for in the far distant future. It's something that we experience right now because of our personal faith and our trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us. You heard the, the, the old song, if you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, let Jesus come into your heart. How wonderful it is to know him and to experience the full measure of his joy that is always available to each one of us. All we have to do is accept it and allow it to transform our lives. And then lastly, notice, growing disciples march to a different drumbeat. Verse 14, notice he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Now notice the text. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. In other words, as a growing disciple, we do not identify with the culture, with the value system of this world. We are called to identify with Jesus. And Jesus didn't march to the drumbeat of the Roman world at that time. He marched to a whole completely different drumbeat, and he calls every single one of us as Christ followers to follow him. And if the world hated Jesus, and they did, they will also hate those of us who put our faith and our trust in him. If you know Jesus Christ and are serious about your faith, every single one of us have a target on our back. We do. And the enemy knows how to get through to us. But remember, greater is the one in us, the Bible says, than the one who is in the world. Jesus speaks of this a little bit earlier in John chapter 15. Notice beginning at verse 18 and following. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would love the world as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way, notice, because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. People today that are doing everything they can to undercut Christianity, to put anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and treat them as some kind of a relic from the past, they do not know God. They've never come to that place in their life where they've acknowledged that they need someone greater than their own do-goodism. And Jesus says... Hey, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be growing, don't expect the world to buddy up to you. Don't expect the world to cheer you on. Don't expect the world to be on your side. They hated me, they will hate you. And that identifies us 
as true, authentic Christ followers. God is looking for authentic, real disciples who will identify with Jesus, not the world. Now, those are the marks of a growing disciple. Now, as we move on into this passage, Jesus has three specific prayers for his disciples. First of all, he prays that growing disciples would be protected from the evil one. Look at chapter 17 and verse 15. He says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Here it is. Underline this in chartreuse, by the way. But that you protect them from the evil one. There are only two forces in this world today. The forces of sin and Satan and the force of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Ray Steadman puts it this way in his book, Jesus' Teaching on Prayer. Quote, The world in which we live is dominated by a satanic philosophy which is diametrically opposed to all that God stands for. We make a very serious mistake when we forget the fact and try to settle down in the world and become comfortable in the world as though it were the climate in which we ought to feel at home. Unquote. What's he saying here, basically? He's saying if you feel at home in the world, something's wrong with your Christianity. This world is not our home, friends. <laughs> We're just pilgrims passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Do we understand this? Oh, we like the comfortable life. All you have to do is go overseas and find out many of God's people are experiencing incredible persecution. In fact, there's more persecution against the church worldwide than in any other period of history. He doesn't call us to feel at home in the world. He calls us to march to a beat of a different drummer. And throughout his writings, John repeatedly declares that we are to follow after Christ. 1 John 5.19, he writes these words, We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, there's always been an undercurrent of evil in our world. But today, evil is right in our face. All you have to do is turn on the TV or, or flip on the Internet. Evil is right there. We have a culture that has been dominated and is controlled by the evil one. And that is why Jesus is praying that his own, those that have been saved by his grace, that they would be protected from the evil one who is out to steal, kill, and destroy all those who have life. Jesus recognizes the power of Satan. But my friends, Satan is not all-powerful. He is not all, he always has to answer to the sovereign authority of the living God. 
Satan can go so far and no further. He doesn't have a carte blanche. He must always answer to the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus recognizes the power of Satan. Indeed, in John 14 and verse 30, he declares that Satan has no hold over me. And when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, he knocked Satan out. That was the death blow to Satan. And Satan is like a prize fighter that has been dazed. And he's fighting wildly. He's going all over the place, seeking those whom he can defeat and devour. But we as Christ followers, here it is. We have the joy of the Lord as our strength. We are overcomers through the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And he alerts us in this passage that if we're going to be a growing disciple, we're going to face spiritual battles. And it's only the protection of Jesus Christ from within that it can help us to overcome. It's important that growing disciples be protected from the evil one, for evil is the fatal flaw in carrying out ministry tasks that God gives them. All we have to do today is to look at the shipwreck of well-known pastors and musicians who somewhere down the line thought they knew better than God. They've resigned their ministries. They've lost the impact because they didn't take seriously that they cannot win in their own strength. The only way that we can conquer is through him who loved us and gave himself for us. None of us are smart enough to do it on our own. It is only the power of God that protects us in these situations. In Acts 4, verses 10 and 12, we discover it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that we are protected and eternally saved. There's no other name under heaven given by men which whereby we must be saved. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. <laughs> Let me tell you, as a growing Christ follower, even now, Jesus, your advocate, the one who helps you overcome, he is preparing a place called heaven for us. He is getting it all outfitted for us. And he calls us while we're in this, this world of turmoil and spiritual battle where sometimes we feel so alone, Jesus is praying for us. Stand in there, buddy. I'm with you. You don't have to give in to all of this uh, stuff for, that the enemy throws at you. I'm praying for you. Man, I don't know about you, 
But I regret that there have been days when I have not been aware that Jesus is praying for me. The Son of God, who's just about to be crucified, he's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what's going to happen to him. He's thinking about us. And he's praying for us that we be protected from the evil one. Number two, growing disciples are anchored to truth. Look at verse 17 of John 17. He says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now again, you and I live in a culture where truth has become very scarce. Most people do not believe today that there's any such thing as absolute truth. They mock the Christian who says that this book is truth. In fact, less than 50% of people in the church today believe that this is absolute truth. We hear everybody talk today about my truth. My truth is whatever I choose it to be. You have no anchor. You have no North Star. You have nothing to guide you when your truth is the only truth. But Jesus says in this prayer, sanctify them by your truth. That word sanctify means set them apart. Help them to understand that your truth is the guardian of their soul. Your word is true. And he prays specifically that they be repeatedly anchored in God's truth. You see, when we acknowledge that this book is our plumb line for what is good and bad, we separate ourselves from the average person who doesn't have any convictions. It's interesting today, it used to be, as I was a kid growing up, there was at least some sense of morality. When was the last time you heard anybody talk about morality today? It's missing from our vocabulary. We, we, we aren't thinking in those terms any longer. We've gotten cultured. Jesus says, get back to the Word. Allow the Word to direct your thoughts, your actions, your conversations, all that you do. The world says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Jesus, who described himself as the way, the truth, and the life, says God's word is truth. And my friends, East Bay Calvary builds their ministry on this book. We start looking for a new pastor. It's all about the book. So it's the only thing. We have a long history of that. 
When we stop preaching the Bible, then our church dies. And I can point to you churches all around this community that are dead because they have strayed away from this book, which is the truth. John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This book doesn't tie us up in knots. It frees us to become all that God wants us to be. You want to experience true freedom, it's found in Jesus. It's found in Christ. He's the one. And then lastly, growing disciples, he prays that growing disciples become world Christians. Notice verse 18. <clears throat> As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, who are the them? Well, there are those that have put their faith and their trust in him. Remember, he sent his disciples out and they changed the world. And those that received their message took the gospel wherever they went. It transformed much of Europe. We've been given the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And he prays that we be faithful in fulfilling our calling. And God's called every single one of us to be the salt of the earth to be the light of the world, to be an influence that inhibits spiritual decay, that preserves a nation. He wants us to be lights. He doesn't want us to, to blend in with the environment. He wants us to expose the darkness. He wants us to let our lights shine. Do you realize when you leave this morning, Every single one of us are going into our mission field. Your mission field may be your family. It may be your relatives. It may be your friends. Maybe your neighbors. But as Jesus was sent into the world, so we have been sent into the world. By our presence in the world, we are to focus people upon Jesus. Now what is a world Christian? A world Christian is not a being from another planet. He's not a character out of Star Wars. To the contrary, a world Christian is one who takes the Great Commission seriously. He doesn't just talk about the Great Commission, he lives the Great commission and how can it be that after 2,000 years having given the church the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations that in America Christianity's on the decline people from other countries who've experienced new life in Jesus are sending missionaries to America because we have fumbled the ball. Jesus is praying, become a world Christian, take my word seriously. 
it's, it's, it's in the book. I mean, if you don't like this, you can take it up with the author. I mean, it's right there. Why is it that we have gotten so focused on ourselves and our comfort and our likes and our dislikes that when it comes to being sent into the world to make a difference, most of us have lived our whole lives and not shared the gospel once with another person. This is why churches miss the ball. We've gotten our eyes off Jesus. We've forgotten about the fact that he's praying for us. And he's praying that we would be a mobilized church. A church that carries the gospel into all the crooks and crannies of our community. And when we respond to his voice, the cross takes on new significance. You see, he didn't just die in history. His death doesn't just have relevance for the past. His death and resurrection have relevance for today. And we cannot sit idly by and watch a world go into a Christless eternity. We must do something about it. What an awesome prayer. Jesus is praying for us. Uh, I mean, this has hit me up the side of my face like nothing else. With everything that many of us have been going through over the last number of months, when was the last time we stopped and recognized that Jesus is praying for East Bay? Every single person in East Bay. And it has broken his heart over what has happened at East Bay because we've turned our eyes off of Jesus. And Jesus wants us to once again turn our eyes back to him. You see, when we are understanding that Christ is praying for us, His name protects us. His truth preserves us. And his vision propels us to get the gospel out. I don't know about you. I have a lot of growing to do. And so do all of us. Let's stand together, shall we, for closing prayer. Father in heaven we love you we are all people in process if we're honest this morning we all fall short I fall short Lord please forgive us forgive us for being so occupied in our own little sphere that we have forgotten how much you care for us that you're praying for us, that you want us to succeed 
You want us to grow every single day and become more and more like you. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times we settle for second best. We only do that which we feel like doing. There's nothing that drives us anymore. We're just happy to be in Jesus. Doesn't bother us that our friends are lost. Oh, God, forgive us. Cleanse us. And may we leave here with a new determination to align ourselves with you, the way, the truth, and the life. And may we experience your resurrection power every single day as we grow more deeply in love with you. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. God bless you.